Welcome back. This just in, President Madgen has earned a reputation for visionary thinking and has a record as a change agent, Scott said. I've asked him to continue his service as president, and I look forward to working with him, the Board of Governors and the Board of Trustees, on this effort to realize a new vision for higher education in Florida. Officials have just released a statement this afternoon detailing the new request. Um, this just in the Gainesville Sun on its website report that Governor Rick Scott and the University of Florida Board of Trustees Chairman David Brown have asked current UF President Bernie Matchin to continue his term. That search committee has planned to review applications and recommends finalists to the Board of Trustees on Friday with the hopes of selecting a new president on Saturday. Congress and the White House reached an agreement at the first of the year on taxes and spending to avert the fiscal cliff. Now that more details about the deal have emerged, Tom Parkinson, former member or from member station WMFE, asked economic analyst Hank Fishkind what impact the agreement would have for Central Florida's economy. Well, the most important thing for us locally is that the payroll tax holiday, 2%, expired. So that's basically a 2% tax increase on all wage and salary earners uh, throughout the United States and here in Florida. In addition, taxes were increased for wealthy families, those who earn $400,000 or a couple earning $450,000. That rate went from 35% to 39.6%. But that's only six-tenths of 1% of all the taxpayers in the United States. Now, I think most people know that by now that the agreement raises taxes on uh, wealthy very wealthy people, people making over $400,000 a year. But you're saying that taxes actually will be going up for nearly everyone. All wage earners. Now, not retirees, not on Social Security, but all wage earners have a 2% increase in taxes this year. And for the average Florida family, that's $1,000 a year. It's significant. Yeah, quite significant. That That's a $1,000 is a pretty major hit for a lot of people in our area living paycheck to paycheck like so many uh, folks in Central Florida working in these low-wage service industry jobs. I mean, $1,000 really you know, makes a big difference. Yes, it does. Orlando's average household income is below the statewide average, so that 2% impacts our local economy a little bit more than the statewide average. So that $1,000, that's money that those folks will not be spending in local stores and restaurants and so on, and that impacts our economy as well. So there are um, secondary effects on our economy as well. Yes, there are. And there are also secondary effects from the fact that all we did was delay the fiscal decisions. Uh, we didn't solve them. And so that uncertainty that clouds the horizon now will continue to be a problem for us uh, through March until we get some resolution. So this deal that was reached last week, we were hoping that that would end the kind of uncertainty that's been holding a lot of the economy back. But this is just a temporary reprieve. Yes, but it's a good reprieve. I mean, the alternative would have been far worse had we fallen off the physical cliff. It would have demonstrated that uh, we are not able to govern ourselves and make important decisions. It would have weakened the president. It would have caused a, a much deeper uh, pall over the economy than simply delaying. At least we have a respite. We have some resolution of some of the tax situation. So there was a little bit of progress made, to be fair. Now, how is this going to impact us in terms of tourism, our major industry here in Central Florida? Well, I, I think it is a, a plus in the sense that we didn't fall off the fiscal cliff, which would have been a disaster. 
Uh, but with the ongoing rancor, it cost a pall, which is a negative for consumer confidence, and the 2% increase in the payroll tax and the looming tax increases all mean and translate that gross domestic product will grow somewhat slower in the first half of the year, which will put some dampening on the growth of tourism. Look, this is going to be a strong season. It would have been a little better had we resolved the situation, but at least we didn't destroy the situation uh, by not coming to some kind of even temporary agreement. So going forward into 2013, are you still fairly optimistic? Yeah, I am. I think that we will get a resolution in the spring of most of the issues. One way or another, we'll muddle through it. And the second half of the year is going to be quite strong. We have a tremendous amount of monetary stimulus, uh, housing recovery that is really getting into full swing. And all those things will translate into stronger economic growth here in Central Florida. That was economic analyst Hank Fishkind talking with WMFE's Tom Parkinson. As a result of a settlement agreement following a lawsuit, the Gainesville City Commission will be hosting a televised public workshop regarding the Gainesville Renewable Energy Center, or GREC, biomass contract on Wednesday. The lawsuit filed by Gainesville Citizens Care alleged the city and Gainesville Regional Utilities violated provisions of the Florida government in the Sunshine Law during negotiations that produced the GREC biomass power purchase agreement. The workshop will be the first public meeting to focus on the terms of the GRU, GREC biomass contract, and the impacts the contract will have on GRU ratepayers and the public. Gainesville Citizens Care Director Joe Beatty says the 30-year contract will be costly. This contract is the most expensive contract ever entered into by the city of Gainesville. It jeopardizes uh, the, the whole financial health of the community. It's going to cause an increase in our energy prices that, you know, everybody else's are going down now and ours are increasing because uh, they've uh, chosen to buy electricity that is double the market value. They've entered into a contract that's for 30 years and we really didn't need any extra energy now or at the point they signed the contract. GRU declined our request to make a comment in regards to this workshop. Beatty says the workshop will offer presentations and discussions related to the power purchase agreement and adds will cover the entire process of negotiating the final terms of the contract. We hope uh, we will tell a big part of the story that people don't know how we're going to talk about this contract and what the contract really means. We're going to talk about how it came about, the way it was decided outside of the sunshine. That, that's one of our major concerns is that this has been out of the sunshine. The public really doesn't know what's going on. And I really believe that there are some commissioners that don't know a lot of the information that we plan to tell. Beatty adds that after a full disclosure of the agreement through the workshop, commissioners may change their views. Maybe they would have made a different decision, and maybe they will make some different decisions going forward based on other information. Beatty says this meeting will benefit the public who he believes may not have a complete understanding of the specifics of the contract. People really don't know the story. They don't understand. Most people think that the city of Gainesville has built this and... Not that we haven't built the biomass plant. A private corporation, out-of-state corporation, has built it. 
and all we have is a contract to buy all this electricity. So that's a really important thing for the, the public to understand. After the discussion and presentation of information, Beatty says the reins are in the hands of the public. Where it goes from here is really up to the public. What we've done is we've brought the issue you know, kind of to the fore and out in the public view. And I think where it goes from here is up to the public. Still, Beatty says they won't be taking any legal action after the meeting. Although the meeting will take place at 4 p.m., Beatty encourages people to attend at any time they can. I realize that that is a difficult time for many people, but perhaps some people on their way home could stop in for a while and uh, see what's going on anytime. You know, you don't have to be there at 4. You can come anytime. This, I'm sure, will go on for at least four hours. The settlement's agreement says a minimum of four hours so that if you can't come at the beginning of the meeting don't let that stop you from coming even though gru did not want to comment they will have a representative at the workshop to answer questions the workshop will be held at gainesville city hall for those who are unable to attend the workshop will be broadcasted on the public access channel cox cable 12 and streamed through the city's website Governor Rick Scott has been talking a lot about the health insurance program for low-income families, Medicaid. The Obama administration wants the state to expand Medicaid, but Scott says it will cost too much. But as Carol Gentry of Health News Florida reports, the legislature's chief budget analyst says Scott's cost estimate is wrong. After meeting with the nation's top health officials, Governor Rick Scott repeated a now-familiar cost estimate from the Agency for Healthcare Administration called ACA. Florida's Agency for Healthcare Administration put out their estimate of what these mansion will cost just for Florida taxpayers, and it's over $26 billion. That's $26 billion over 10 years. But there's a hitch. The legislature's budget chief says the ACA report used the wrong assumptions when it came up with that number. It left out billions in federal funds. Health News Florida obtained a series of emails from the legislature's budget analysts. They show the Budget Commission rejected the report and sent it back to ACA. The governor's health budget coordinator sent back an email saying they've decided to stick with those numbers anyway. They don't believe the extra federal funds will ever come. For Health News Florida, I'm Carol Gentry. Welcome back. For the last three months, Florida has led the nation in the number of homes in some stage of foreclosure. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. Reporter Robert Lyle says that since the start of the recession, it's been a horror story for the Sunshine State. Imagine if every single home in Orlando and its suburbs had been foreclosed. The picture of boarded-up homes would be staggering. Yet that's exactly how many houses were taken in foreclosure in Florida from 2007 until the end of October this year. Way over 400,000. Now, a different image. In Broward County alone, 59,000 homes were foreclosed upon. So, for that, picture every house in the cities of Naples, Fort Myers, and Sarasota combined, abandoned every single one. Florida, unfortunately, has been among the hardest-hit states. Barry Zegas is Director of Housing Policy with the Consumer Federation of America. That's partly because of uh, the popularity of living there. It's partly because how much of the economy was built on construction, so you had a kind of a never-ending feedback loop. Zegas says the surge of speculative investors who pumped up the condo market was another major factor in the beginning. That causes property values to drop 
everywhere, and that puts all homeowners in jeopardy. And, of course, one of the longer-lasting consequences of this market failure and the collapse of the housing boom is has been an extended period of unusually high unemployment and underemployment. And, of course, that has also been driving people to the brink of financial ruin. The Mortgage Bankers Association says Florida has double the national average of mortgages that are currently delinquent. That's 8%, and it doesn't count those already in foreclosures, nor does it count those who owe more than the house is now worth but have been making their payments anyway. Marla Popkin is a 51-year-old occupational therapist in Miami. She's been paying her mortgage faithfully, but work has been very thin the last couple of years. I cashed out an annuity a couple months ago, um, so I'll get taxed on that. <laughs> her mortgage payments are just under $2,000 a month. Now I have like $6,000 left to my name, and I'm trying to decide, like today I had the real estate agent over, should I try to rent it? Should I sell it? Wait a minute. What about all those programs that help people in trouble with their mortgages? Well, there are 15 different federal programs alone. Among the major banks, Wells Fargo has run a series of home preservation workshops across Florida recently, inviting customers with troubled mortgages to come to a local hall, learn about all the options, federal and otherwise, and usually have a positive answer within an hour. Michelle Greer helps run the Wells Fargo workshops. Uh, modification um, is, is the one that uh, is, is most probably widely understood, but there's others like a repayment plan, uh, a forbearance, a refinance. We don't want uh, the house to go into foreclosure. Mary Hagens of Riviera Beach was one of those who got a modification to her mortgage at a West Palm Beach workshop. Well, originally I was working and then I got a pay cut. I lost my job. Then I got sick, had a heart attack, and my daughter and I, we've been struggling trying to get, you know, get ourselves back on the right track. And it's been a long, long trying road. Mary and her daughter are back working now. Those who are out of work or are underemployed due to no fault of their own must turn to the hardest hit program. I'm Robert Lyle in South Florida. The Florida Lottery is undergoing a rebranding change as part of a celebration to mark its 25th anniversary. But as Florida Public Radio's Sasha Cordner reports, while it's touted as a great contributor to education, critics say the Florida Lottery is just state-sponsored gambling. This Saturday, January 12th, will mark 25 years since the first Florida Lottery ticket went on sale. And as part of the silver anniversary, Florida Lottery Secretary Cynthia O'Connell says they're revamping the lottery's image with a new logo. The familiar flamingo and sunset logo will be gone, but she says it's time to bring that flamingo into the 21st century with a modern design. We believe that this rebrand is going to position us so very effectively for the future. Um, we, it's a competitive edge for us to take one of the most popular consumer brands really in the state and rebrand it into something that will last for the next 25 years. At the event to unveil the new brand, O'Connell says changing the logo will provide more chances to win and ultimately go toward one of the lottery's main goals. Certainly $24 billion, uh, life to date has gone to uh, education in forms of transfers to the Education Enhancement Trust Fund. Last year alone, we transferred $1.31 billion. We're on track this year to transfer $1.37 billion. Um, we're doing our job to generate as much money as we possibly can for education because that's why we're here. It's the only reason why the Florida Lottery is in existence, to create funding for education. But some, like Republican Representative Eric Fresen, say the state would be better served if there was no lottery. 
Last year, the lawmaker from Miami tried to pass legislation that he says would mostly regulate the gaming industry. But the effort failed. If I could be king for a day and had a magic wand, I would eliminate all gaming in Florida, starting with what I think is the most predatory of all gaming, which is the state-sponsored lottery. However, Florida Lottery Secretary O'Connell says erasing the lottery altogether is not what Floridians want. What I say is that the citizens of the state of Florida voted for a lottery in an overwhelming majority. And they wanted to help the lottery to help them fund education, and we're doing our job. The Florida Lottery's annual revenue is $4.45 billion. O'Connell says the Florida Lottery prides itself on being self-funded by using no tax dollars to operate. Meanwhile, the legislature this year is bringing back a gaming committee chaired by Republican Senator Garrett Richter to take an in-depth look at gambling in the state. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Sasha Cordner. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered on Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Lindsay Zients. And I'm Nikkel Smith. Florida's legislative session doesn't start for two months, but already both Republicans and Democrats appear in agreement that voting laws need some changes. WUSF's Yoseli Ramos has more. Some legislators are trying to redeem Florida from its embarrassment this past election when Florida came in dead last on counting up its ballots. Democratic Representative Daryl Rusan is sponsoring a bill that changes voting laws. Democratic Representative Mark Danish is co-sponsoring it. We need to set it back to where it was before, where it was bipartisan that, you know, we had an equal part in this. And I think uh, this past election was a disaster for us. And Republican Senator Tom Lee says he's okay with more early voting days. We've expanded early voting, and now it has become an entitlement. There's no question about it. But that's not to say that uh, I don't support increasing early voting. The Senate is holding voting hearings starting on Monday. I'm Joselise Ramos in Tampa. As we've all heard, Congress averted the so-called fiscal cliff last Tuesday. Included in that was a one-year extension to give a key tax credit for the wind industry. Reporter Patricia Segustume tells us what that means for Florida. There are no large-scale wind farms in Florida, at least not yet. But with the extension of the production tax credit known as the PTC, a wind farm that could bring over 100 gigantic wind turbines to western Palm Beach County could happen. Robin Size is a project director of the Wind Capital Group's Sugarland Project. He says they're extremely excited. I think there's a very good chance that we could start, uh, if need be, moving dirt by the end of 2013 and, and having a certain amount of construction and also capital investment if there's a metric for how much capital investment or construction cost has to be sunk by the end of 2013, I think uh, there's a good chance for all those criteria to be met. The renewal of the PTC allows wind producers a 2.2 cent tax credit per kilowatt hour for the first 10 years of production. If the Sugarland project becomes the first utility scale wind presence in Florida, manufacturers of turbines and wind components will be lining up for the big contracts. Let me uh, say that up front. Decision has not been made. The big boys who are in hunt are GE, Siemens, and uh, and Vestas, and, and possibly even Camesa, but GE has a manufacturing facility in, uh, in Pensacola. I know Siemens has a facility in Orlando. So there could be a, a big play for in-state here. Although Florida is in its infancy in regards to a wind farm presence, its standing as a manufacturing hub for wind components just got a boost with the extension of the PTC. 
I'm Patricia Sagastuma in Hollywood. As the city of Gainesville faces budget problems, much like the rest of the country, every bit of spending is analyzed. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Corey Brooks has the story of one attraction that has drawn some attention. Local governments are responsible for a variety of things. Health care, law enforcement, recreation. One of the ways the city of Gainesville entertains its residents is the Ironwood Golf Course. Ironwood is a city-owned golf course in East Gainesville. But some officials in the city feel that the golf course should make some changes. Right now, the Gainesville City Commission is trying to figure out exactly what the long-term future of Ironwood is. District 1 City Commissioner Yvonne Hinson-Rawls, who represents Ironwood, says that the commission is looking to improve the course. Well, right now we have a request for proposal out on the street for... um uh, a professional management and operations person or group to come in and uh, spruce it up. We actually want it to be one of the co- best golf courses in the area. And so we want people with some expertise in the area to come in and uh, take over and manage it for us. These efforts were started by District 2 Commissioner Todd Chase, who wants to begin collecting information. Uh, I made a motion and the commission uh, agreed to uh, at least pursue other opportunities to see if there's even a market for it. So because people talk about these what-if scenarios without knowing what if. And so um, we are currently right now out on bid for companies to take over the the management of the golf course, the uh, maintenance of the golf course, which you already do contract out. And we've uh, added to that also a, uh, a request for bids if anybody would be interested in acquiring the golf course. But the two commissioners have very different directions that they want to see the course go. Chase says he would like the course to become profitable and that a private company may be able to do that. Probably would have to be some kind of uh, you know, thing on, 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 on rates and things that, that you know, public courses are, are typically a little lower than the private courses. So I think that would be important, um, again, to the majority of the commission. I think that the, uh, the other thing that would be important is that it, it makes, that it does make financial sense to help with our current budget problems and situations. So it would, it would have to include a financial aspect that over time would show a clear path to saving the city the kind of money that it would take to make the decision to you know not own it anymore that a company could maybe a private company could provide more resources and things that 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 maybe the city couldn't to in order to uh, maybe generate some some greater revenues and so that'd be something i think we'd all be open to Meanwhile, Henson Rawls says that it's more about bringing the game of golf to new players. I would think they would have great PR uh, uh, opportunities and uh, abilities to uh, get the course and all of its amenities into the right venues and magazines and also um, have uh, pros, golf pros on hand to uh, teach people who want to learn, such as myself, how to play a good round of golf and how to actually become golf pros. I would uh, venture to say that it would be good to have people who can teach college kids and high school kids how to become pros themselves because young people are taking the course kind of like a tiger and uh, becoming using it as a career. Uh, choice. Uh, in addition to that, they need to have people who are good landscape architects who know the course, uh, know what makes a professional course work, how it should look, how it should feel, how it should slant. I wish the city could find a way, frankly, to uh, uh, make it not just profit-making, but to have it pay for itself. I would like to see it self-sustaining.
Golf course supervisor Jeff Cordozo agrees, saying that the real benefit of Ironwood lies in the expansion of the game. Well, I think first and foremost, uh, Ironwood's a communities course. I think uh, it doesn't matter whether you're you know, young, old, wherever you are, you're welcomed out here. And I think that's the, uh, the most special thing. We, uh, we allow kids to come out here and play uh, for $5, play as much as they want. Senior citizens are more than welcome. And then uh, so many different varieties of people as well that uh, come to the east side of Gainesville. Golfer Art Stewart plays at Ironwood and says the course is great for the people of Gainesville. I think it's a great community environment. It's got a, it's good for the, you know, charity work. Um, I've been, I born and raised here and played here all my life, and uh, since the, uh, the improvements have been made, I think it's added tremendous value uh, to this area, especially that there's not too many golf courses here that can compete with this one in the. Gainesville area. Golfers across the greens of Ironwood have noticed a difference in the last two years, however, in the quality of the course. Ironwood underwent renovations a couple years ago, and Cordozo couldn't be happier with the changes. Night and day difference. Um, I, I think the uh, the biggest telltale sign was when we had a lot of the rain during the summer, um, whereas probably before the renovation, golfers wouldn't have been able to come out and play for a day or two afterwards. They were immediately playing afterwards, so it, uh, it made all the difference in the world and um, didn't have to do just cart path only anymore. Uh, the drainage did what it was supposed to do, and I think it was a great effort. Cordozo goes on to say that the renovations are key to upping the profit margin of the course. I think there's there's a lot of different creative ways that we can do. Obviously, there's marketing efforts, different ways that you can go about doing things, um, trying different specials and in uh, different points throughout the uh, the year, and that's something that um, everybody's looking into, trying to implement different things and um, just let people know how great the course is because I think a lot of people still have the misconception of it was ironweed before the renovation so you still hear that throughout the community even two years later so the, so the biggest problem is trying to get those people out here because on a daily basis everybody that tries it now I think has uh, great things to say about the golf course. The changes are certainly noticeable by those who play at Ironwood and Art Stewart says he loves the course. I would say it's a pretty good cor- course it's it's got a nice layout Tee boxes are good. I like how they did the undulations around the greens. The bunkers are phenomenal. And the bottom line is I play up in North Myrtle Beach a lot, and this is a very unique golf course when it comes to layouts. Um, it's not easy. you gotta, you got to hit your irons as much as your woods. and it's a, you know. But I would say, in general, if I was getting picky, I would say the fairways. At the same time, Cordozo says that the renovations help to further the game in the community, making the course more popular. The way you look at it, obviously the goal is to try to get more and more people out here to, to play on a daily basis. But I think if you look at the, the whole golf industry as a whole, I think a lot of people are struggling right now economy-wise. But um, you know, the, the fact is what, what we are able to do um, for just different individuals. It, it's not necessarily about... Uh, you know, going out and trying to, to do all these different things money-wise, it's allowing individuals to play and, and let them use the community's course in the way it was meant to be. Overall, both Cordozo and Commissioner Hinson Rawls are happy with the course in the public hands. And, and just, just knowing what, what this place is capable of. Um, you know, I think there's just there's so many things from allowing Special Olympics kids to come out here and play for free, allowing junior golfers to play for $5, allowing um, you know the high school teams to come out here and, and utilize the course. Um, I think that would be something that I think a lot of people appreciate. And um, it's, it's really neat that when you look out every afternoon, there's fathers and their 
five-year-old son you know obviously women now coming out and playing and that's another goal that we try to do is, is try to promote the game more to, towards women's players so um I, I think there's a lot of great things about the course and then and then again after the renovation i think condition wise uh one source has done a great job in keeping things uh, the way they should be. Lots of people use it from my district, but uh, it's not especially for the district. It's for the city of Gainesville. Everyone uses it, and uh, I'm pleased to have it in my district. Lots of people use it, and people from uh, my district who might not otherwise have a place to play golf get to play golf, and they do. For now, the commission will continue to gather information on potential management solutions, but it's still early. So the process is still on the front nine. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Corey Brooks. According to the Centers for Disease Control, more than one-third of Americans suffer from obesity. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Maggie Schwartzman reports on a new way people could lose weight without diet and exercise. A protein has been identified that when absent helps burn fat and prevent obesity and obesity-related diseases. Dr. Stephen Chu, a principal investigator with the University of Florida's Sid Martin Biotechnology Development Institute, says this protein, called TRIP-BR2, would help prevent obesity if inhibited. Dr. Shu discovered the gene in 1996 while working at Massachusetts General Hospital. TRIP-BR2 is a protein that determines how fat is used in the body, whether it is stored or used as energy for fuel. Dr. Shu and other researchers have carried out experiments blocking the protein in mice with successful results. And uh, we discovered that the, if you delete this gene and the, in mice and th- this protein is no longer made, uh, the mice are actually completely resistant to a high-fat diet. They could not get fat no matter what you feed them. Dr. Shu believes the effects could be the same for humans. Dr. Shu says if a drug were created to knock out the TRIP-BR2 protein, it could greatly help already obese people lose weight without dieting or exercising. You could start out by being overweight or obese. You take the medication. Um, it inhibits the activity of TRIP-BR2. And... Uh, the fat that you, you have, um, it, it actually will be burned off, and it'll stay off no matter what your diet is. While Dr. Shu believes that losing weight the more traditional way, through diet and exercise, is the healthier and better option, he thinks blocking this protein would help those who struggle with losing weight or keeping the weight off. Though many weight loss drugs have safety concerns, Dr. Shu says his team can find nothing concerning in the mice without the gene that would raise a safety issue. These animals uh, that we created that don't have any copies of the TRIP-BR2 gene, um, to our knowledge, they're completely normal in other respects, so I think the safety profile would also be quite good. The only abnormality in the mice is a very low-grade fever caused by the fat being used to create heat energy, but Dr. Shu says this is not dangerous. Dr. Shu says he believes the next step is to create a drug to block this gene in order to prevent obesity and obesity-related diseases. Next step would really be to um, figure out what the protein structure is and then go to some form of um, approach to develop uh, a new classes of, of drugs that would target this protein. Dr. Shu says developing anti-obesity drugs can be difficult because pharmaceutical companies are shying away from these types of drugs because of disappointing research in the past. But he and his team are hopeful that a drug can be developed in the near future. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Maggie Schwartzman. 
If you've ever helped a child get ready for bed, you know that encouraging them to brush their teeth can seem more like pulling teeth. Tooth sealants placed on a child's molar actually reduces the risk of a child developing a cavity, much like brushing prevents them as well. Dr. Bill Mass is a public health dentist and serves as an advisor to the Pew Children's Dental Campaign. Pew says that Florida is one of 20 states that received a failing grade for child dental care. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Leah Harding spoke with Dr. Moss on the more efficient way to start fighting cavities. Moss says you can't wait until a child has an appointment at their dentist's office, but rather has to meet the children where they are, in their schools. So what was your involvement then on the study? Okay, I serve as an advisor to the Pew Children's Dental Campaign. Uh, before coming to Pew, I was at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for 10 years as director of the Division of Oral Health. And actually, while I was there, um, uh, several things uh, happened to uh, put a focus on how effective school-based sealant programs are for preventing disease, actually, in the most cavity-prone teeth of the most cavity-prone children. It turns out that the most cavity-prone teeth are the permanent molars. Uh, One set comes in at age 6, another set comes in at age 12. Uh, So these are the teeth most likely to get a cavity. We know that low-income children are not only more likely to get a cavity, but they're less likely to get a sealant. And if they do get a cavity, they're less likely to get it treated until after it's already begun to cause some pain, disrupting their ability to sleep or pay attention in school. So it's, it's pretty serious when uh, we allow d- disease to occur that could have been prevented. The school-based approach to providing sealants is to uh, focus on schools where 50% or more of children are on a free or reduced lunch program, which is an indication that they're of low income. So that's, we know those are schools where the, those uh, children are concentrated, and therefore it's efficient to go out to the school with portable equipment and provide the sealants right there. And is this a free service for the students? In, uh, in almost all uh, states, this is a free service because most of these children are um, eligible for Medicaid or the state children's health insurance program. In many states where they have effective programs, they also use some grant funding, which gives the uh, program the flexibility to be able to, to treat even those children who may, not ha- may be uninsured uh, so that every child in the school that has a need for sealants can have them placed. Where does the beginning of this issue really start? Who does it start with? Well, I I suppose the first, uh, it it does start with the issue of parents not having developed the habit of regular, uh, taking their child for regular care. And often that's a problem because there's very uh, few dentists that are willing to treat Medicaid children. Every state, you know, again, varies in that. And Pew previously uh, issued a report um, that that showed, compared Florida to others in um, both in the percentage of children that are Medicaid eligible that had received a dental service in the past year. Um, So some of this is uh, the parents not knowing uh, the importance of regular care, but it's complicated by the fact that uh, in many cases, even if they wanted care, it'd be very difficult to find a dentist that would um, would accept them and would treat their child. And what type of a cost difference is it for families if they want to put a sealant on their child's molars versus not and then paying the cost of a cavity? Typically, the cost of a sealant is about one-third of the cost of a filling. So if you seal four teeth, uh, that adds up to more cost than one filling, but it's far better to place the sealants on the teeth and have the teeth be protected than it is to wait until after a cavity is set in.
if a child were to not receive a tooth sealant and then later on have to pay for a cavity, is there not some organization or some corporation that is benefiting from these children who don't have access to sealants? But he wouldn't medical, no, I, medical yeah, no. want you to have cavities, you know? No. <laughs> well, you know, I think that the dental profession is really proud of its uh, record of embracing prevention. And, um, you know, when we look at the dental health in the nation over the last several decades, there's been a tremendous improvement in dental health. So this isn't a... a, a um, an experimental approach or anything like this. This is one that's been demonstrated to work in many states, and it's a, really a matter of, uh, of the, uh, I don't think anybody's making money off of the fact that children are suffering um, with toothaches and not paying attention in school. The, you know, the problem with the whole society is being harmed uh, ultimately from that. So on top of the school visits, then what would be the next step to help improving Florida's grade? Well, on, so on this uh, particular measure, one other thing that we noted was that uh, most states have done a survey in third grade. One can answer three questions. Does this child have any cavities? Have they had any cavities? Do they currently have any decay that's untreated? And do they have a sealant? And so the third grade you know, survey provides a real snapshot of Florida is one of those states that has not done that survey or not done it recently enough to be considered current data. But, you know, without, even without those data, we know that uh, just on the basis of the experience elsewhere, that if you don't have programs to reach these children, they're un- going to be unlikely to receive them before they have a cavity. That was Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Leah Harding talking with public health dentist Dr. Bill Moss. Recapping our top story on WUFTFM, University of Florida President Bernie Matchin has been asked to stay on as president just days before the Board of Trustees was scheduled to select a new president. In a statement from UF, Matchin has agreed to stay on, but it doesn't indicate how long. Both Governor Rick Scott and Board of Trustees Chairman David Brown said in the statement that Matchin can help move UF up into a top one of the top ten universities in the nation. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Lindsay Science. And I'm Nikkel Smith.